Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Um, it's Valentine's Day, and yes, we know it's all about the heart, but really, where do you feel love? You don't really feel it in your ticker, do you? You feel love in your gut. You set your eyes on your beloved and your stomach goes whoosh and does a backflip. So in honour of the day, we are doing a show all about intestines. But hold on. We need to acknowledge that there's a pandemic going on. So for the rest of the year, we are going to carve out the first 10 minutes of the show for COVID news. And our first guest has a really spectacular innovation in that regard that will have all frontline working workers cheering around the world. It's a paper-based PPE gown that actively kills the COVID virus. Professor Gilles Garnier is the director of the Biosource Processing Research Institute of Australia, or Biopra, Priya, at Monash University, and he'll be chatting with us about his team's Legno discovery. Dr. Susan Mahadi is a gastroenterologist and epidemiologist epidemiologist. Everybody knows what that is nowadays. She's at Monash University and she just loves the fact that everyone gets a poo test for their 50th birthday. I'd have preferred a new power tool set, but I guess it's harder to post. Susan should know a thing or two about poo tests too, because she researches bowel cancer and has some very important and surprising findings to tell us about. Now, if you remember the Fitzroy Football Club of the 1980s, then you're sure to know the name Laurie Serafini. He was their vice captain and then board director for the Brisbane Lions in the early noughts. He is now a communications expert and business coach, as well as ambassador with the E.J. Witten Foundation in Men's Health. But the story he'll be telling us this morning is his experience with bowel cancer and what he's learnt from it. And Lorenzo has a good story to tell indeed. Yep, it's a gutsy show today. And who better to have along for the ride than Dr. G Dr. G Spot and Nurse Pen, two of the toughest interviewers on Zoom and in pyjamas. So stick with me, Dr. Mal, and the team for the next hour of radiotherapy. Let's bring the team on the line. Good morning, Dr. G Spot. Lovely to be here, Dr. Mal. What a big show, as you said, full of guts. Yes, full of, full of guts. That's the way that we like our Valentine's Day. Um, how are you, Nurse EpiPen? Good morning, Dr. Mal. You, uh, you're booming through with a bit of an echo I can hear. Yes. Can, can, is that better? That's better. You might have to close the door of your studio because otherwise... Have, I have closed the door. That's how Should loud I your voice... No, no, that's how loud your voice is. It echoes across Brunswick. Now, tell us, G-Spot, you had some news. Uh, was it regarding Valentine's Day? Uh, actually, I'm uh, talking about the benefits of singing, if that's okay, <gasps> Dr. Mal. Even better. That's something that you want to do on Valentine's Day. Absolutely. So do you guys remember back at the start of the pandemic in Italy, we were seeing a lot of people um, singing on their balconies? Yep. And anyone who's been to a Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Christmas party for the last three years will know I'm an absolutely excellent Um, (laughs) So what I wanted to tell you guys about today was that it seems that choir singing can be particularly beneficial, particularly for older members of our community. So a recent study published in PLOS One by um, Pentikainen et al. showed that choir singing may result in the same benefits as playing a musical instrument. So what they did in this study was they looked at 106 choir singers and 56 non-choir singers in Finland, and they were aged 60 plus. And they found that the choir singers had better cognitive functioning and better emotional well-being than the non-choir singers. And of course, we know how important it is for, for better cognitive functioning as we age. So this is a really cool thing. And they thought that maybe the choir singing is a really cool thing because it's it doesn't cost much. 
it's um it's also an activity that requires a lot of skills like learning the lyrics remembering them actually executing them as well so they're their thoughts on why choir singing might be helpful and so I'm wondering if maybe all of us during this lockdown weekend could get out open our windows get out on our balconies and start belting out a tune just like the Italians were at the start of the pandemic to keep our brains healthy absolutely what a great idea There is one problem, though, that it's an aerosol-generating behaviour. So we can't sing with other people, but we can sing through the window and to our neighbours, so that's a good idea once. So a Zoom choir we could do. Zoom choir, now you're talking. That's a great idea. Let's do it. Let's belt out a tune sometime during the show. I happened to run into a cognitive psychologist over the week and she was talking about uh, maintaining good cognitive health and I said, what about dancing? Because dancing requires movement, planning, organisation, being in tune with the music. And she said, yeah, dancing is really good for keeping your, your faculty in check and very, very healthy. So maybe a bit of dancing and singing on the balcony or behind glass. Get get your instruments out. (laughs) You know, let's just make this a fiesta. (laughs) Okay. Best lockdown yet. Now, EpiPen, you had something on, um, talking about cognitive uh, uh, faculties failing, but you had something about Valentine's Day, didn't you? Valentine's Day, 14th of February. According to historians, the Valentine's Day is a successor of the ancient Roman feast of Lupercalia, dating back to 300 BC. And what it's really about celebrating the coming of spring. So there are more flowers, certainly in the European countries. And one of those rituals involved, this is a good one, sacrificing a dog or a goat and using its skin to whip women an act that was believed to increase fertility. What? How about that? And I've got a staggering figure for you. Yeah. In, two, in 2019, Australian romantics spent a collective of $528 million that year on gifts and flowers yeah. across Australia. So it's a bit of a, a, a very... Um, financial day and I feel very sorry for the florists that have had a bit of trouble today but you can click and collect so enjoy your valentine's day and it's good to be back with the team for 2021 and we're still zooming and we're still dealing with this tricky little virus so you and I are the eternal optimists aren't we we're always so cheery we're always trying to look on the bright side of things yeah it's yep that's what we've got to do and now um I've been very excited because for the last couple of days, I've been thinking about our next guest. Uh, Professor Gilles Garnier does work with paper-based products and wood-based products and is basically um, a world authority on this. And I've got some bonzer ideas, but before I launch into my Nobel Prize winning ideas, I thought we should build Gilles on the line. Welcome, Gilles. How are you? Good morning. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for getting up early in the morning and uh, being with the radiotherapy team. Now, just tell us a bit about this quite incredible innovation you've been working on. Well, we've been, I'm lucky to be in a very fertile environment at Monash University. It's just lots of clever people, lots of students, it's dynamic, colleagues, they're experts in everything. So this is to start with a good place. And also our institute work with industry. So we have the dynamics, the, the nimbleness of industry. And with this environment, it's easy to, to come with the idea. So I have colleagues in uh, medical science, in engineering, in chemistry, in design, and we bring all the expertise together. And, you know, when there's a crisis, we try to come with, uh, with solution. And that's what we've been uh, working on. So, so you've been doing something quite fascinating with paper. I mean, this has been your kind of your field, isn't it? Paper-based technologies. Paper and cellulose. So when we had the COVID, basically, our institute became, I would say, an emergency center. And we had a team working on a diagnostic, and you probably were a bit of media on that. And under the team working on the PP and basically on the paper gown. And here we use our expertise of the paper, of the material, but not the paper of your grandfather, I would say the modern paper, to develop solution for the problem. And here, what we've been doing is basically to engineer, to develop, to test uh, a paper gown, a medical paper gown made of laminated paper that provides you the full protection of a medical for 
uh, garn. How do you do that? What do you do to the paper to make it uh, so good? Well, it's even better. We don't uh, do it. We, we rely on our partners. So when we had this crisis, we formed a consortium with industry and we had two uh, companies that made the paper, Noski Skog and basically it was Mary Bear. They made a paper. Another partner that developed the, the coating and every day we're getting together and uh, to, to discuss and to optimize. What I should have said is uh, the we had a team and the team can uh, volunteer. They drop everything to create a task force to solve the problem. So in 10 weeks, we went from absolutely nothing to form a consortium with industry. And every day we're zooming and the paper was coming here, laminate there, testing. You say, no, that's not good. No, that's better. And we, we, we solve the problem. So what we have is basically a paper over, over which we create a very thin layer of uh, plastic of polyethylene. So that's the first step. And after we learn to design and to meet each of the criteria required for medical gown to give protection against the, the, the COVID, the virus. And we learn how to transform that into a, a gown. And uh, we, we give that to a few uh, volunteer friends that didn't run fast away and they threw in, in a medical surgery and they, they tried that for a few days and give us the feedback and uh, we optimize and uh, that's how we worked. So do, do you actually put uh, some, um, do you actually take the paper, put some COVID virus on it uh, and see how long the virus survives on the actual product? Not exactly. It's basically it's, it's a protection. What we have is a paper that is basically the support, the mechanical strength, over which we laminate to create a very thin films of polyethylene, the same as uh, the, 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 the plastic of a plastic bag, but very thin and controlled. And that is laminate that is fused on that. And we use that as material. So the first thing, it has to be solid enough so we test the, the, the properties. And after, basically, it has to provide protection for our medical uh, uh, course. So it, we, we, we uh, measure the, the penetration of a virus to make sure that it doesn't uh, penetrate. It has to, to be used in medical environments. So it has to protect against blood and liquid. So there's a series of standards. We took them one by one and we yeah. engineered the, the paper uh, to, to meet all the criteria. And we found good way to fuse or to sew the, the material in order to be able to, uh, to manufacture that the very large industrial scale. So as usual, I got it wrong in my introduction. I thought that the coating actually is uh, kills the virus, but what it does is provides a very strong no, barrier against the virus. That. We have this technology, right. but it is too complex, too expensive. We like yeah. simple, and that works, yeah. and cheap. Yeah. So paper is cheap, polyethylene are cheap. We keep it this way. So, so two things. What is the cost, Gilles? And um, can the gowns be recycled? What's the re reusability? Uh, excellent question. Cost, basically, it's the function is the chicken in the egg. How many uh, eggs you want that will tell you how big of a chicken we need. So the cost is made of paper. So let's face it, this is uh, the paper. It's the, the paper we select. is pretty much the same paper on which you write. So that's, you know, it's a, a cent, maybe a page or even less. So I would say the material would be uh, something like, if I'm extremely generous, 50 cents. So we're talking about less than a dollar, the, probably uh, 50 cents to a dollar the gown. That's what we expect. That, yeah, so, that's great because I did Google's costs of gowns and that sort of the average one is about $2.50. So that's coming in as a very cost-effective piece of be, equipment. Yes. And, and reusability? Or we can recycle, but here there's a bit of, of an issue with the, you know, if you, you work in a surgery and there's blood all over the place and virus, yes, we have the technology to recycle, but I'm not sure I want to do that. So the way we think it's going to go in the incinerator, it's going to be incinerated, which will produce just uh, the, the, the CO2. It will be much less, I would say, toxic than the, 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 the plastic one. But as we speak now, because of the COVID and the transition, our plan is not to recycle, although we have the technology to do it. And I've just got one final question. What's it like to wear? Because you know that nurses and nurses in particular in ICU have to wear these gowns for a very long time. I think they, they recycle them or take them off every four hours. But are they comfortable with this polyurethane on it? Is it does it make you sweat more? Is it... 
that's when the, okay we we work and basically it is the the, the main issue it's the, the durability is not the same as a fabric so it's a little bit uh, paper like as the for the model we had but and it has also for the for the protection it has to provide for to be completely impermeable to to gas and therefore to moisture, so it's less comfortable. So what we did is we work on the back to, to provide some uh, basically aeration because we have the technology, we could have made a type of Gore-Tex, but if we do so, we do not meet all the, ex the, the, the most uh, stringent criteria of protection. And our first priority was to protect the medical uh, personnel and then to, uh, to be comfortable. Also, what we can do is basically what we have is a kind of on the same weight. What we can do is to make articulation to the, to the arms to make it more comfortable uh, so we can yeah. refine the, the concept. But the issue we have, it's a little bit paper, paper-like. It is made of paper. Gilles, um, here's my Nobel Prize-winning idea for you, and I and I and I give it to you on air. So I've got you've got witnesses. What about getting? Because in line with our show today is about uh, intestinal health and about bowel cancer and about early uh, detection. What about coating toilet paper? with a chemical that when it detects blood, it turns a particular colour, make it purple. So it's an early detection device every time you wipe your bum. What a good idea. We need to think about that. So to work the toilet paper for application, in our group, on which we use the toilet basically to analyze bloods. Idea. So we can do that. We put antibodies, enzyme, and we have lots of nice diagnostic. But I need to reflect a little bit on your good idea. To change color, we can do that. We do that also with paper, but we do that to analyze. We have a, a test to analyze the, the, the sugar in your in your blood. Yeah. Instead to have a little strip, what we want is like the, the for the, the paper strip for your, your, your pool. You put a drop of blood and it just show you the color. So that we have it. But to combine that, Oh, that's a winner. I've got I've got another one for you. I've got I've got another one for you. Tissues. You know how some tissues are impregnated with aloe, the the moisturizer. Impregnate tissues with vitamin C and zinc. So every time you blow your nose when you got a cold, you're giving yourself mucosal zinc and vitamin C. See, see, awkward silence there for our listeners. That's. That's usually what I get from people when I give them my ideas. Jill, it's been great having you on the show. Fantastic uh, innovation that you've been working on. Cheap, effective, and so, so timely. More power to you. Thank you so much for joining us. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos, and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Welcome, Dr. Suzanne Mahadi. Can you hear us? Yes. Can ah, you hear me? Fantastic technology. Yep, it's working. And, you know, this is our first show for, uh, for 2021, and uh, technological skills fade. <laughs> it's been about two months since I've worked a panel, and it really, really shows. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Tell us, you're a gastroenterologist and epidemiologist. How did that happen? Uh, so um, I originally did my medical degree, and then, I, of course, I got, some, uh, I got interested in gastroenterology and did training in that. And after that, I had an interest in epidemiology, and I did a master's and a PhD in epidemiology. And I find that the two um, work really well together and it's a really interesting area. Isn't it, you know, I find with medical, well, with lots of people, but I'm in the medical field, I find they do one thing, like they get a degree and they go, yeah, I'm interested in something else. So then I do gastroenterology and they go, yeah, but then I want to do a PhD. So it's, it's that sort of um, burning curiosity, I think, that is so common amongst uh, uh, people in the medical field. How do the two overlap? How does gastroenterology and epidemiology overlap? Yeah, so the particular form of epidemiology that I do is clinical epidemiology, which is really um, a lot about research methodology and a lot about how that applies to clinical practice, um, not so much the population-based epidemiology. And so every time, for example, we make a diagnostic decision or a decision to do a test, 
in clinical practice, then we have to ask ourselves, what is the utility of doing this test? Uh, what is the chance that I might miss a certain diagnosis or that I might detect another diagnosis? And when I do research in those particular areas, for example, bowel cancer or fatty liver disease or other things that I've been interested in, it helps me to understand what I'm doing when I'm using tests in practice or uh, what I could be missing, for example. So that's just one example of how it can help. Um, on a broader level, it helps to think about when you apply broad decisions in, you know, across a, a group, for example, in an outpatient clinic, uh, it helps you understand whether you're using cost-effective medicine, for example, should you offer a colonoscopy to everybody or should you not? And, uh, and it's very, um, it's very uh, important to do that and to consider that. What are some of the things that um, you've changed practice, your own practice or practice has changed more generally in that field of gastroenterology in the last, say, I don't know, 20 years because of epidemiology or our new knowledge about tests? Like, you know, we're doing more or less of something that, you know, 20 years ago we were doing quite often? Uh yeah, I think colonoscopy is a good example of that. Um, it was thought that colonoscopy should be offered to everybody over 50, and certainly that's more the practice in the US. Uh, in Australia, we now have a, an extremely effective bowel cancer screening program, and we know that we don't need to offer colonoscopy to every person who's, who's turned 50 and has no symptoms. And the data um, from all of the studies tells us that uh, on a population level, the best thing we can do is to screen people first, and that helps us to stratify into people who would benefit from the test and a group that would not benefit from the test. And the ergo, our poo test that uh, you get in the mail when you're 50. Is that right? Yep. What's the take-up of that like? Uh, it's around 42% at the last, uh, the last uh, sampling. And why do you reckon it's so low? I mean, it's not low, but why do you reckon it's 42 rather than 92? Yeah, it's uh, so breast cancer screening is more popular. It mm. seems to have captured the imagination of the population more than uh, bowel cancer screening. And the uptake there is around 55%. I think it's low because there's an icky factor to dealing with stool. Um, I think some people uh, get the test, but they don't feel that they are at risk of bowel cancer and they don't think it applies mm, to them. Yeah. But in Australia, we have one of the highest rates of bowel cancer in the world. Um, and it's the second uh, commonest cause of cancer-related death in Australia. So we all need to be thinking about it. Uh, I think sometimes there are system factors. For example, people move house and so the kid turns mm, up at the old yeah. address, not the new address. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's um, a lack of endorsement from friends or family yeah. or their GP. And so they just think of it as, um, <clears throat> you know, an, a, a, an additional test, but not really something that's necessary. Whereas I think it really is necessary for people who are turned 50. I'm just going to lob in with a quick idea before um, Dr. G-Spot's question. Here's an idea for you because I'm full of ideas this morning. What about <laughs> a national poo day where you keep your test and on, I don't know, you pick a day of the year that you want to have it, make it. February 2nd, my birthday, yep. everybody that's got a poo test does it that day and there are big celebrations and like, you know, teas and everybody talks about the poo test that they did. Yep. I love it. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Gemma. I was going to say, Dr. Mao, we should have had you years ago. Um, Suzanne, I was lucky enough to be part of, a, I suppose, an advertising campaign to promote FOB tea testing a few years back and we came up with stick it to number two. <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed to go fairly well, but now that you're telling me 40%, I'm like, oh, maybe we didn't quite hit the mark. And I suppose, do you have any other ideas besides National Poo Day of how we might, I suppose, normalise our discussions around faecal testing? Mm. Yeah, I mean, we do need to attack it at the level of all of the different barriers that occur. But certainly mass media campaigns are extremely effective and you do see increased uptake in the couple of months after they're done. It's just that that's not sustained. And so perhaps we need to be doing those much more regularly. Um, you know, we also know that there needs to be more media discussion and promotion of it. Um, certainly when Kylie Minogue was diagnosed with breast cancer many years ago, the publicity around that was huge and the increased uptake in screening was around 100% increase in the first few months wow. afterwards. Wow. And then that kind of, you know, uh, gradually went down again. Um, so, you know, we'd need some celebrity endorsement with that um, National Poo Test Day, I think, as well. Well, I'm happy to offer my services for yes. that. 
I've got a good story. Dr. Mal and I met in gastro more than 30 years ago at one of the big hospitals in Melbourne, and we still are good mates. And I just wanted to talk about my experience with poo. Not, I mean, I do it every day, but I think we need to talk about it. And I think we need to make it more fun and call it poo, maybe not a stool or feces, have a fun kind of attitude to it and talk about do we look at our poo when we flush it down before we flush it? Mm. You know, what's mm. normal? What are what are the changes of a poo yeah. sample? And yeah. you go to sit down with some friends and have a coffee and people go, oh, don't talk about it while we're eating. And I think, well, what, what's what's that? You know, just make it more fun. Make it, we talk about we and poo, number mm. two, number one. That's, I think, you know, my sister got a her um, fecal alcohol blood sampling test her test and she it freaked her out she just thought it was looked way too medical and um difficult to get her head around and she put it away and then she did have a think about it and maybe Suzanne you'd like to comment about this weekend but she finally did have a look at and they have changed the packaging a bit it is a bit more friendly a few more stickers and you know that emoji of the little poo why aren't we doing that a bit more I'm a big poo talker I love and maybe I talk a bit of shit as well but it's just those things that we should make it more light-hearted and it's not such a terrible thing yeah exactly and that's obviously a great idea and humor is always really helpful with promotion um, and that would be something that the, the bowel cancer program needs to look at. But, you know, as we were saying before, we're in lockdown this weekend, certainly in Victoria. Mm. And there's no better time that if you've got your kids sitting there in the drawer and you've got nothing else to do, because we, we really don't, uh, it's a great time to do it. How long does it last for the kit? Do you know? Like... In terms of expiry? Yeah. Is it like a year yeah, or so? Yeah, usually a few months. Oh, okay. Um, but you can, if you're kit has expired you can ring up the bowel cancer hotline and discuss that with them and they will relook up your eligibility and send you another one um, but there are other ways you can do the kit you can do it with your gp mm-hmm. there are commercial ones that you can buy over the counter at the chemist mm-hmm. uh, so there's a number of ways to do it has it have we noticed an impact in the um, mortality and morbidity from bowel cancer since the introduction of uh, universal testing at 50 yeah, so there has been a reduction in bowel cancer incidence in older groups as a result. Mm. Um, and we've done a study that's looked at that and shown that um, we've also shown that there's an increase in younger age groups as well. Right. G-Spot, you had a question. I was actually going to ask Suzanne, so those of us who are less than 50, we, we don't get the, um, the, the screening test. What should we be looking out for? Yeah, uh, so the number one symptom really is rectal bleeding. Um, So new blood that you see when you go to the toilet. So often people have seen a little bit of blood on the toilet paper, particularly when they strain for many years on and off. And that's not generally a sign of bowel cancer. But when you have a new symptom of bleeding and it seems to be getting worse and possibly some other symptoms like a bit of tummy pain, Mm. they're really alarm symptoms Mm. that you should go and see your GP about. Um, Suzanne, would you talk to what percent of positive tests, so on the faecal occult blood, really are cancer? So addressing sensitivity and specificity of this screening tool? Yeah. So it doesn't detect all cancers. There's no screening program that does. Um, If you get a positive result on the stool test, the risk of bowel cancer is somewhere between 2 to 4% at subsequent colonoscopy. So it's very low uh, in consideration of the numbers, but certainly very important to follow up if you do get a stool test and talk to your GP about a colonoscopy. Can I just command bold um, that last thing you said? So if I do the test, my FOB test that I get in the mail when I turn 50, in, you know, 10 years' time when I turn 50, and it returns a positive result. There's only a 2 to 4% chance that I've actually got cancer. Is that right? That's right. Wow. So basically don't freak out if you get a positive result because there's only a 2 to 4% chance. Is that what you're saying? I didn't know that. That's amazing. Yeah. And that, that number is an average and that yeah. will vary if you're 50 and female yeah. versus 74 and male. Um, but in general, it's low. There are other reasons the test can be positive, like hemorrhoidal bleeding, yeah. false positives, etc. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, sorry, Epipen. Yeah. Um, how many lives are saved by having this test as a screening tool? 
So with the latest data, it suggests that if uh, we have the current participation participation rate from 2015 to 2040, around 60,000 lives are going to be saved over that time frame. And then if you can increase the participation rate to say 50%, you'll save another 20,000. So that's 80,000 wow. Australians. And it's an extremely wow. effective you know, cancer screening program and um, really important that people 50 to 74 do participate and do it. And it's really tragic when I see people that come in and have some symptoms yeah. and they've never done it. And we talk about why they haven't done it. And they said they were too busy yeah. and you do a colonoscopy and there's a bowel cancer there. Uh, yeah. And that's a tragedy that, that could and should have been averted. Wow. Wow. 80,000. That, that is astounding. I actually didn't know those, those numbers. And uh, oh, sorry. Oh, the um, cost effectiveness of the screening test. It's, yeah, it's highly cost effective um, and that's why it's been funded and that's why it's been promoted. And there's even some data to, to suggest that it may be cost saving as the years go on because of the cancer treatment costs that are averted through effective screening. So very, very uh, cost effective program. There's just on top of cost effectiveness, Suzanne, like I've had a colonoscopy before and I'd much rather just, uh, you know, mail my poo. Um, can you speak to people's experiences of colonoscopy versus a, a screening test? Yeah, sure. I, I do colonoscopy a lot. And um, so from my, my perspective is different from the patient's perspective, but colonoscopy involves bowel preparation and, and bowel preparation generally is disliked by most people. You have to drink a drink and uh, you're not allowed to eat much of what you want, just clear fluids the day before, you have to fast. You do have an anesthetic and the colonoscopy has risks of perforation and major bleeding as well as a tiny risk of death. Uh, whereas the stool test is simply putting a layer of paper in the toilet bowl, doing the stool on top of it, using the dipper that's provided to take a little sample, put it back in the, in the container, keep it somewhere cold, for example, in the Ziploc bag in the fridge, and then post it. Wow. You know, I'm, st I'm still reeling over those figures you told us and the number of lives saved. That's really quite incredible. And it is, did you say that bowel cancer is the second most common cancer in Australia? In yeah, yeah. So after breast cancer in women and prostate cancer in men, that's excluding the skin cancers. Wow, that's extraordinary. Epi, um, one um, Just one of the things about foods that we can eat that turns our poo red. So one of the classic ones is beetroot. Yep. So I know of, of people turning up to their GPs saying, I poo's turned red. At least they're looking at it. Yeah. But, <laughs> is there anything else that can affect the colour of our poo? Uh, no, the one I see mostly in clinical practice is, is beetroot. And, uh, and it turns urine pink too. So that's a sign that it's not just, uh, not just your stool. There, sometimes people see um, what they think is tomato and they're not sure whether it's tomato skin or it's, or it's blood. Uh, they're, they're the main ones. Yeah. That reminds me of the time I, when my, oh, she would have been about three-year-old daughter, um, uh, went to a party and ate a heap of watermelon and then came into our bedroom at about eight o'clock at night and vomited all over us. And I looked at it, I thought, oh my God, hematemesis, hematemesis, you know, <laughs> bleeding from the stomach, bleeding from the stomach. My wife looks at me and she goes, nah, it's watermelon. <laughs> and, I, and I didn't gastro for a year too. Um, Suzanne, thank you so much. Really interesting uh, segment, fascinating uh, facts and figures. And as I say, radiotherapy, well, particularly me and Penn, because we're the over 50 in the, in the group, we're happy to put our faces to the poo test campaign and to, to help celebrate a National Poo Day. Excellent. Thanks so much. Okay. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up the Triple R website to find out how. You might be listening to us on the radio. You might be listening to us on your computer. You might be listening on podcast. Either way, you're listening to us and thank you so much for doing so. We have a uh, very special guest, uh, Lorenzo. I love it that you put in your email, Laurie. I can call you Lorenzo. Lorenzo Serafini, how are you, Laurie? Good morning. Hi, everybody. Very good. Thanks to be great to be on, Dr. Mel. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Look, um, for people that weren't around in the 1980s, look, there are a few people in the 1990s. Look, there's some. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your, and your career. Oh, no, I don't want to bore people. I did. <laughs> 
I did play for the hugely successful Fitzroy Footy Club in the 80s, which was fantastic and had a great career and, and um, had a job as well. That was, those were the days when we were playing footy and we were working as well. Um, and you know what? I was actually working for the opposition. I was working for an FM station in uh, media sales. Get out of Triple here. M. Oh, right. Yeah, Triple M. Yeah, right, right. And um, so you're working for Triple M. You're playing footy. Uh, and then you... Got were... married. Yeah. Got married, had kids. Um, I then had a incident with testicular cancer right. uh, 30 years ago where I had my left knacker removed. Mm-hmm. All good. Had a bit of radiotherapy on my tummy just for insurance and all good. And it's interesting, you know, I had a, I'm as fit as a fiddle. Um, I played sport from 10 till 30 flat out and yet I still get testicular cancer. Mm, mm. So that all went well. We were treated and everything went well. Um, had another baby girl after that just to show that uh, you know, one testicle's enough. <laughs> all's good. And... Um, Life, life went on really well with work and, and marriage and family, etc. up until about 2016, I think, when I um, just spotted a bit of blood, as uh, Dr. Suzanne would say, just a, a bit of blood in my poo, mm-hmm. in the toilet. And I think I probably didn't do much for a week because I thought it was a hemorrhoid mm-hmm. and um, I'd been pushing too hard and okay, okay. And then I was uh, smart enough. And I think one of the takeaways from Suzanne was just, that fear factor from the guys and the girls um, that we don't do anything. Mm. And, and I think one of the, for me, having lived around and being around footy clubs, having um, a knee reconstruction, Achilles operation, um, having broken bones, having had testicular cancer, I was very comfortable with doctors. Mm. So I went to the doctor and he gave me some hemorrhoid cream. But it ended up being anal cancer. Jay, mm. mm. how, long, what was, how long did that take to get picked up? Um, well, the, the doctor, the GP was fantastic. He, he's about 75 not out. He's got, comes out in the white lab coat. You know, he's very old school and um, gave me the cream initially. And I did that for a week and it didn't quite work. And good points to me. I went back to the doctor and said, yeah. not happy, still a bit of poo. And he said, right, have you had a, a colonoscopy? No, you're over 50. Yeah, okay, let's go and see the doctor. So this is Christmas by now. Yeah. And I see I see the specialist and he does a rectal examination. He says, oh, I can feel something there, probably hemorrhoid. And I said, yep, I thought so. Uh, look, it's Christmas in a couple of days. See you, how, how about the middle of Jan? So I had the colonoscopy in the middle of Jan. And you know, you come out of it, you're a little bit out of it with the, the light anesthetic. And he says, look, you'll have some stitches. See you next week. Mm. I said, fine. So I go home thinking it was a hemorrhoid and I've got some stitches. Um, and my wife, Catherine, who's um, a former physio, is very medical. So she said, okay, good. Um, go back to the doctor. So I waltz back to the doctor. I'm, I'm normally a pretty jovial type guy. How are you going, doc? How are you, Laurie? I'm a bit sore from the stitches when I'm trying to poo. Yes, well, um, we got the biopsy back and you've got anal cancer. Oh, I've just fallen off the chair. Yeah. Again, you know, I'm fit, well, yeah. I, you know, we eat really healthy. Yeah. I have maybe one glass of red wine a night, you know, I really look after myself. Yeah. So we had a discussion about that. And he said, look, it's not that common. Um, it's not bowel cancer, which I should tell people, you know, it's in that same family. Right. But um, it's, it's not quite as serious as the bowel cancer. Um, it is frequent in Australia. We see some episodes of it and... Um, you should be okay. We got it early, but you're going to need six weeks of radio and six weeks of chemo. And, you know, I got to reception, rang Catherine. Well, she's almost in tears. What? Yeah. But we got through it okay. So, I mean, I mean, what was going on inside your head when <laughs> the doctor said, look, you know, you've got anal cancer? I mean, what were you feeling? What yeah. Were you thinking? Yeah, that, that was pretty scary because having gotten through the testicular cancer, yeah. And I knew that that's serious, but very treatable these days. Um, yeah, Dr. Meller, a thousand things were going through my head. Um, you know, why me? And am I going to see the kids grow up? And what's going on? But but he reassured me pretty quickly that it's very treatable. And well done to you. You got in early. So I've, I've, and I'm, I'm pretty positive. Yeah. EpiPen. 
Um, Suzanne, would you like to talk about any statistics about rectal cancer and and um, support Laurie's information that it's not as bad as bowel cancer? Uh, so with Laurie's story, um, uh, I don't know whether um, that was anal or rectal cancer because the two are very different. Um, rectal cancer can be as bad as bowel cancer depending on whether it's spread or not. It's all part of the bowel lining, but anal cancer has a different uh, pathophysiology. Um, but we have seen an increase in rectal cancer in younger people both here in Australia and uh, in the US as well. So uh, there's certainly data to support the fact that this can occur in a younger age group as well. Yeah, the, Suzanne, the, the surgeon always referred to it as anal cancer. And he was very confident that I'd come in early enough and that he'd gotten the, the cut it out early enough and he'd sent it away for pathology. Um, so he was confident but he still wanted to do the six weeks of chemo and six weeks of radio, mm. which, yeah, it, it was bad, but it's it's manageable. It was okay. Mm. Mm. Juice Bart, you had a question? I was going to ask, Laurie, so um, I'm assuming you, you know, you still are friends with your footy mates and, and stuff like that. Did you discuss your experience with anal cancer with them? Yes, yes, I have, because, you know, the grapevine works beautifully, so they all knew about it and, and rang in and said hello. Um, so, we, yeah, we, we talk about it pretty freely. Um, I haven't heard of anyone else having um, that incident. But a good friend, now to mention it, a good friend of mine rang me freaking that his wife had anal cancer. And, Laurie, I heard from your brother. So, I was, you know, because I'm really happy to share my story, and it's a success story. Um so yeah, talk talk about it freely, Dr. G. And also um, in the intro, I've also volunteered to do some speaking on behalf of the EJ Witten Foundation, which is men's health and largely prostate cancer. And I think we've got to get the message out there as, as you guys have been doing fantastically this morning and Suzanne's chat was riveting. We've got to talk about it freely and not be concerned about, um, you know, it's a stool or, you know, it's the penis or it's the anus, just make it black and white. So, yes, so Laurie, what would you do or how you've sort of touched on it, but how else can we make poo testing more fun and, and more accessible and people do it more frequently? 40% is not a great number. I mean, it's it, to me, that sounds terrible. I know it's compared to 55% with um, screening for mammography for breast cancer, but do you have any thoughts how we can oomph up the testing um, rates? Yeah, look, not off the top of my head, but I totally agree because um, keeping it taboo is not going to help anyone. And I think if we can uh, get out and talk, and that's why I was really delighted to talk to the EJ Witten Foundation. Um, but there's, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of the community who still see it as taboo and, and don't really want to talk about poos and wees and so forth. And it's just going to take a... a a long, long time and great education. I mean, just as an example, I'm doing some talks for the EJ Witten Foundation and um, I get on and tell my bit of my story like I'm doing now and a, uh, a surgeon comes on and really gets the PowerPoint slides out and he's you know, very specific with this, that and the other. And um, then there's a, we sort of wrap up and go home. And one of the guys came to me in two incidents quickly. One came and saw me and said, Laurie, remember you're playing. Um, I've been bleeding for a month now out of my bum and uh, I haven't done anything about it. And I said, look, go and sit. The surgeon's just in the corner. Go and have a chat. Because mm. uh, that scared me. I said, mm. no, that, that's not good. Mm. Um, and then the other one, a guy came up and said, Laurie, good. You know, I loved your story. Um, uh, I know you talked about having checks. I'm uncomfortable with getting a finger up my bum. Mm. And I said, yep, yep, I get it. It's, it's, you know, 10 seconds, you'll be fine. So there's still that um, fear and ignorance in the community, which is going to take a long time. And your little program's fantastic. Suzanne's walk's fantastic. Um, DJ Witten work is fantastic. Um, it's going to take a while, but we've got to get out there. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Laura. I reckon we've got to become more familiar and more comfortable with uh, yeah. with you know that kind those kind of conversations. And it, look, in some cultures, like I'm talking medical cultures, 
you know, as you know, as uh, Epi said, you know, she and I bonded over poo about uh, thirty years ago when we were doing uh, uh, gastroenterology together, and it was just a very just normal thing. I mean, you just talk about it. it. It wasn't verboten. There was no stigma about it in our little kind of medical culture. But obviously, in the broader community, people think it's icky and look, you know, it's messy and dirty. But it is, it's, you know, it, it can be a lifesaver. And again, I'm reeling over those statistics that Suzanne told us about. You know, you could save yeah. 80,000 more lives if we just bump up the number of people that take the test. And the test really isn't that difficult to do. Um, and also, if uh, Gilles, our professor from the start of the show, uh, adopted my idea of uh, impregnating toilet paper with a blood detection system, I mean, really, we're going <laughs> to... A know. toilet roll might cost $20. Well, you just use, I don't know. Well, I haven't, I haven't done the economics of it yet, but I, I think, you know, if we could start discussing it more broadly, then we're going to get a lot more take up and we're going to save lives. And that, that, that's really good. at least stop the panic buying of toilet rolls if they're 20 bucks. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It'll certainly Dr. Mal, yeah. I, just, I just had a thought because there's no magic cure, but maybe on the flip side, this is purely thinking on my feet. One of the other things that might need to change is your fraternity, maybe the doctors and the nurses, because um, sometimes they're a bit stiff and wooden when you go in and see them. Mm. They're all very medical and it scares you even further. Mm. Not, not with me. I was comfortable and, you know, I'm sort of chatty and, and I love people, so I'm, I'm optimistic all the time. Mm. Mm. I'm optimistic we might even get out of lockdown here in Melbourne at some stage well, I... this year. Um, <laughs> I certainly hope so. The, the bedside manner. I don't yeah. know whether Suzanne or, or you've got a thought. That's just me thinking on my feet. Uh, you know, absolutely. I, you know, the culture is so important in the room and in with uh, with whoever your doctor is that that you feel comfortable um, talking about this sort of stuff. And you know, certainly in medical school, we do lots of teaching about that kind of thing. But yeah. you know, it's uh, horses for courses, and different people have different personalities. But uh, EpiPen, you go for it. Um, I was so what I was thinking is the best time to have a review is when you get your annual flu. So you should book a long appointment with your GP and touch on everything, psychological health, um, have a uh, digital exam. So that's where the doctor puts a finger up your bottom to feel for prostates or for tumours, um, blood pressure, lung function. Maybe it just We do it for our cars. Why can't we do it for ourselves? Just once a year, we go and have a really good chat with our GP, find out what's the latest and... That should be built into our psyche for every, not, I mean, even teenagers or early 20-year-olds. Once a year, go in for, a, a, you know, a service. Uh, my best mate was saved by a, a prostate exam. So, uh, you know, by his GP doing a, uh, a rectal exam. And so I'm forever thankful um, for that because he actually did have cancer and needed uh, an operation and if it wouldn't have been for a series of investigations and that that examination he wouldn't be around so yeah it, it holds particular relevance relevance to me but yeah I, I, I absolutely agree with you guys discussion Laurie yeah I think um, just because I work in the communications business I think if we talk a bit more about it I, you know I spoke to my wife Catherine who's in the next room listening and she's all over it um, she, I, we happily got married. I never looked at my poo, never thought of my pooing habits. And she's talking to me since we got married about what colour is it <laughs> and how often he goes to the toilet. She's very, she's very into it. You know, she understands. So it's, it's made me a little bit more literate about that sort of stuff. But it, we've got to talk about it. Um, as one of you were saying to my, Dr. G, I think, G Spot, um, talk to my footy mates and talk to my male friends. And, and then talk to your wife or husband or significant other and say, listen, I've spotted some blood or something's not what it seems. Um, you know, if you tell someone, the problem gets halved a bit and maybe you can deal with it. I'm even thinking talking to kids mm. because if you make it all normal, I mean, there's so many poo jokes when we grow up as little kids. My sister yeah. was the professor of poo jokes because she would have she would have us in hysterics and talking about them. But kids could talk about, you know, there's all sorts of things that we can pick up from poo doing silly things like floating. You know, kids could, oh, mum, you know, not that my children have had that, but just telling them, does it float? Does it look odd? Has it changed? Yeah. Suzanne, what, what do you do you think about educating younger people? Oh, totally agree. Totally agree. I think if, it's, if it starts in the schoolroom, 
got to be a little, mm. little bit delicate about it, but totally agree. I mean, I if, if we were talking and it's Laurie Serafini at 21 years of age, I wouldn't be as comfortable and as confident as I am now. But being older, you know, I've been 59 now for two or three or four years. <laughs> um, I'm very comfortable sharing and chatting and talking. Suzanne, uh, did you want to answer that question? Yeah, I think whilst it's important to talk to young people and young people are often a bit more flexible talking about these things. I think, you know, Laurie's age group and older and particularly men are the group that I would like to see targeted. They're, mm. they're less likely to do the bowel cancer screening kit than women, but they're more likely to have bowel cancer mm. than women. So that's really the, the key group that need to know about it and to do it. I think you raised such a good point there, Suzanne, about women being more likely, and maybe it's about the female partner encouraging their male partner to do the yeah. test at the same time. Maybe we need to sort of hook in women to, to help their partners be more involved. Yeah, I think that's Very right. Good. And in practice, I see what I call the wife effect, where the wife encourages the husband to come in and get something done. And I'm always grateful to those wives who are pushing their husband because often it's something that's been put off for a while. Yep. So epidemiologically, I love saying that word, Suzanne, epidemiologically, uh, are men who are partnered more likely to get the test than men who are unpartnered? Um, I don't think that's ever been studied. In my practice, certainly people that are partnered, um, you know, frequently they'll say, oh, my wife pushed me to do this or said she's done it and, and you should. Mm. Um, so I do see that, but I haven't seen any data to support that. And we've look, we've only got about uh, a minute to go. Suzanne, can I ask you a very quick question, which I meant to ask you right at the start of the show? Why did you choose gastroenterology? Uh, because I had a lot of fun doing that particular rotation with other doctors. It was a very pragmatic specialty. It was, it was a good diagnostic specialty. We weren't just dealing with blood tests, but we were dealing with patients, you know, preferences and symptoms, and it was a challenge to diagnose sometimes. So it was really, and it kind of cut across the broad um, areas of medicine with procedures as well. So it was good fun. I've got to say, because I did it, for, as I mentioned, I did it for a year. Um, and the reason that I got interested, again, was the people. Um, I fell in with uh, a great bunch of people who were super, super smart, super good fun, super great with patients. Um, and I just thought, well, you know, this nice way to spend the next sort of 40 years of my life. I then sort of got detoured into psychiatry for a whole variety of, of other reasons because of another group of people. But does, is that often the way with, with medical specialty? You kind of – it's not like you start with a burning desire to be, a, I don't know, a – gastroenterologist or an endocrinologist, but you find a group of people, you find interesting patients and you, your curiosity is peaked and that's where you travel. The road to careers uh, is is so mysterious and um, yeah. who knows what life is going to hold for us. Look, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show with us. Laurie Serafini, Lorenzo, I love, I'm practicing my Italian, Lorenzo Serafini. You've been great, mate. Oh, More power wow. to you. And thank you. Ciao, 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 ciao. Uh, grazie mille. Thanks for joining us, uh, Laurie. That was absolutely fantastic stuff. Uh, Suzanne, Suzanne Mahadi, thank you so much too for all your facts and figures. It was some absolutely stunning startling information i'm really going to have to think about and mull over that that uh, those facts and figures you gave us thank you also to nurse epipen and to dr g spot for being with us too hi this is panel beta thanks for listening to the podcast of triple r's radiotherapy a weekly radio show dedicated to health medicine and well-being broadcast live on triple r from melbourne australia every sunday Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.